Good morning. My name is A.W. Ward. And I want to personally thank each and every one of you for tuning in to our services on this morning. We are certainly living in very trying times, times in which we are forced to separate physically. Nevertheless, we should always strive to be together in unity. And so I want to encourage you to really open up your hearts and minds and receive with meekness this word this morning that is able to save our very souls. We're going to look deep within God's word and ask a very serious question of ourselves. Can our faith withstand the fire? Can our faith withstand the fire? This is the series that we're going to deal with and it will be over a course of four weeks. And so we ask that you continue to tune in each and every week and be encouraged, be equipped, and be enlightened by the Word of God. Now without further ado, listen to the Word of God. Amen. Amen. We're very thankful and blessed that uh, God has allowed each of us uh, an opportunity to assemble ourselves together here on uh, this morning. We just appreciate so much His grace, His mercy, and His love. We're so thankful that God watched over us last night while we slumber and slept and arose us from our beds this morning, clothed in our right minds. And we're just so very, very thankful. There are those that uh, perhaps are under the delusion that the alarm clocks woke them up this morning. But I want you to know there are alarm clocks going off all over this land and country. Yet the body is not stirred. But God loved us so much, and he favored us so much, that he touched us all with the fingertips of his love. And he caused us to see this another beautiful day. You know, the Bible says that this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, it doesn't matter the weather whether the sunshine or the rain. Every day is a day for us to rejoice. Amen? We want to continue our lesson series, Can Your Faith Withstand the Fire? This, of course, is the third installment of this particular series. Coming from this morning, Daniel, the chapter is 3, and noticing verses 16 through verse number 23. And again, <clears throat> that's Daniel chapter 3, noticing verses 16 through verse number 23. Now the Bible reads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. 
and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship <clears throat> the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his armies to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And again, our subject for this series can your faith withstand the fire? I want us to take a moment again looking at our text that a couple things I want us to point out before we go further into the lesson itself. I want us to take a note of their faith. They make a statement in verse number 17. And they said something. They said, the God we serve is able. Do y'all see that? The God we serve is able. Now, notice what they didn't say. It didn't say the God we serve is going to do this, that, or the other. This is important because many people go and make claims that God has not said. This is very important. They said the God we serve is able to save us from it. Now notice the next the distinction in the next thing they said. And then they said, and he will rescue us, notice, from your hand. They didn't say he will rescue us from the flames. He said, or they said rather, he will rescue us from your hand. Now, the reason why this is significant is because oftentimes we have a preconceived notion of how, when, what God is going to do. You see, but these men understood, number one, that God is able. And secondly, God was going to remove them from this adverse situation one way or another. And either way it went, they were satisfied with it, church. It didn't matter what route God took. Because notice again what they said, that 
The God we serve is able to save us and he will rescue us from your hand. Then he says, but even if he does not, we want you to know, King, we're not going to serve your gods. Regardless. And we're not going to worship that golden image either. You see, and then as you go down further in the text, you notice that Nebuchadnezzar was angry and his attitude changed towards them. He made the furnace seven times hotter, the Bible says. And the very soldiers that were called upon to throw them into this fire, they were killed by the very same fire. You know, church, I think another point to be made here is the fact that we got to be careful participating in things we ain't got no business in. And then I want us to notice the Bible makes a point of showing us that everything that those three men had on was highly flammable. Did you notice that, how it, how it lists what they had on? Just think about that for a second. That's, that's unusual for it to list what they had on. What does it matter? Why, why point out? Why point it out what they had on? And it did it after it said the soldiers was killed. And then the Bible goes and points out, well, look what they had on. And so the point of it is, even though what they had on was, I'm sure, equally as flammable as those that put them in the fire, yet the Bible doesn't say anything at this point in our text about them catching on fire. You see, so you see that God is able, regardless of situation, regardless of circumstances, it doesn't matter how things may look or how things may seem, God's will Prevails. Now, when we began this series, church, we set out to examine the events of the lives of three very faithful men. We divided our text into four parts in order to better understand the value of serving the true and living God. Now, they are as follows. We talked about the trouble in the first lesson, uh, the trust in the second. This morning's uh, lesson has to do with the testimony. And the Lord said the same, the next, next lesson would be the triumph. So far we focus, of course, our attention on the first two, the trouble and the trust. And from then we've learned that there are real benefits in demonstrating our faith in God before others, especially our children. Amen? So that they too would know how to take a stand for God, especially during trying times. As we must also remember that patience grows under pressure. Now, today, we want to carefully examine the power of God to transform lives through the testimony of a faithful servant. Our lesson today will provide the real life and practical examples of what we discussed and discovered in the first two lessons in this series. One of the first main points that we saw in this series was life struggles don't define who we are in Christ, but they most certainly will reveal who we are. Amen? Now, when we consider 
the power of the testimony. And church, listen, this is a terminology that you almost never hear in the Lord's church. And when you do hear it, it is used in a negative sense. As though folk in denominationalism, they say, well, that's these kind of people. They want to get up and testify. Uh, what? Listen, who else has a better testimony than God's people? You know, we have, to, we have to be mindful, church, just because somebody else has a misunderstanding. That doesn't mean that you don't do, we don't do what God says. We're supposed to testify on the Lord's behalf, okay? Now, just because somebody else is doing it wrong, by us making it obsolete doesn't mean it's right. And I'm going to prove it today. Now, we must be willing to grow in order to be able to understand and comprehend that God often uses time of adversity and persecution also as times of opportunity to testify and glorify him for the cause of Christ. Remember in Mark 13, 9, Christ warned his disciples that they would be brought before rulers and kings for his sake. Notice why. For a testimony to them. Also, don't forget the advice and encouragement given to us by both James and Peter to all of us who are trying to live a faithful life in Christ. James put it this way. In James 1, in verse number 2 through verse number 4, James says, Dear brothers, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy. For when the way is rough, let's know what James says. Your patience has a chance to grow. Notice again, he says, when the way is rough, that's when your patience has a chance to grow. Therefore, James says, let it grow. Don't try to squirm out of your problems. For when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you'll be ready for anything. Strong in character, full and complete. You see, James is pointing out something to us. He's trying to help us to understand that God is performing a work in us through carrying us up the rough side, if you will, of the mountain. See, we want to go down the smooth side of a hill. God takes us up the rough side of the mountain. Peter put it this way. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good 
If that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Church, listen. Don't argue the word of God. Instead, live it. This is the only reason anyone would ever ask you anything. <clears throat> it's not about us being able to out-talk people. It's about us being able to outlive. You live the gospel in our, in our communication, in our attitudes, in our lifestyle. This is what causes people to ask a question. Because if people can't see a difference between us and them, what question would they ask? You just like me. What questions do you ask? It has to be something different between the two to ask a question because otherwise there's no need for a question. Amen? Notice what Paul says in the book of Colossians chapter 3. Noticing verse 17 and verse number 23. Paul says, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And he goes on in verse 23 and he says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord, rather than for people. Do you see that? See, so the lives that we are living, church, we are representative of the Lord. And so that's why we got to be so careful how we treat people, the things that we do, because we are the Lord's ambassadors. We are representing him. And if we misrepresent the Lord, the Lord gets a bad rap. And we can't afford to do that. Amen? Amen? Now, these three courageous and faithful servants of the Lord weren't concerned about themselves, nor were they afraid of the fury of the king. Their only concern, notice church, was obedience to the Lord and being faithful witnesses to all who were watching and listening. Because guess what? Someone is always watching and listening. Amen? And so that's why we have to only concern ourselves with being obedient. Their attitude was positive. Now notice, and their words were few and concise. Whatever we do for the Lord, he must have center stage and not us. That's important. We have a whole lot of people want to be seen of folk. That's the wrong attitude. Because you're not there to represent Christ if you're trying to take center stage. Amen. If you're trying to tell somebody off. If you're trying to get somebody straight. How does that represent the Lord? It doesn't. Certainly not in a good way. Amen. Listen to what the proverb writer says. And the 21st chapter in verse number two, Proverbs, Solomon says this, we justify our actions by appearances, but God examines our motives. See, this is what God looking at, the thought and the intent of the heart. Oftentimes things happen. We do things to be seen of men rather than to be representatives of the Lord. 
When we consider the life and death predicament that these three men were in, we can easily see, church, how they could have reason within themselves and justify compromising their faith for their survival. Satan is always ready to give us what is called plausible deniability or situational ethics. A perfect example of Satan trying to take advantage of a human weakness was when he approached Christ in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. You recall the story, do we not? Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Bible says he was taken, and I've always thought that was curious. He was taken by the Spirit to be tempted. Has anyone ever thought about that? That the Bible actually says he was taken by the Spirit to be tempted. Now, somebody may say, well, that sounds strange. Well, it only sounds strange when you don't combine it with what the Bible tells us in the book of James. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation. Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be, what? Perfect and entire, wanting nothing. This is why the Spirit took Christ to be tempted. Because the Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. That's why the Bible says that. You see, he is our example. He went through the temptations that you and I would go through so that he could be an appropriate advocate for us when we go through the things that we go through. Now, in other words, Satan wants to give us a way to excuse our disobedience. Now, let's consider the following possibilities of self-justification. Parents, here's a common one your children will use. Everybody else is doing it. Oh, if you had a dollar for every time your child told you what everybody else was doing. Amen, somebody. Here's one, parents, that, that some grown folk uses. Well, our office demands that we obey the boss. And here's one. This third one was actually said by a member of the Lord's church. Right here in Monroe. This is not the right time or place for God. That actually was saying an opportunity for the Lord to be glorified at a public event could have possibly exposed the gospel to a people that never heard it. And a member of the Lord's church said, who had the power? Who had the power? I emphasize, who had the power to usher it in? This person said, this is not the time 
other place for God. Church, there is no time and no place that God should be left out of. If God don't, don't, don't fit the time and place, then you ain't got no business taking part in whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's time for God. And it's a place for God. And if not, that's the problem. Whatever that thing is, that's the problem. It's not God interfering with it. It's whatever you're doing, you ain't got a business doing it. If God can't be a part of it. Then you have another one. Well, we'll bow our knees, but not our hearts. Outwardly, in other words, you'll see us bowing, but inwardly, we ain't bowing. Okay, whatever. We can serve God better. This, this is a good one right here. We can serve God better if we continue as officers in the king's court rather than as being ashes in the king's furnace. Now, that's good, that's good human logic right there. Look, I can do a better, God, better job of God alive than I can dead. That sounds good to me. <laughs> Even though, church, those choices are seen by many as rational and justifiably convenient. However, all of them demonstrates a lack of commitment to God. Listen to again what Solomon says in Proverbs 3. Solomon says, trust God from the bottom of your heart. Listen to what he says. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. I'll tell you what, if we didn't get no other scripture today. <laughs> listen, listen for God's voice in everything you do. Everywhere you go, he's the one who will keep you on track. Notice everything you do and everywhere you go. And I go back to this is not the right time or place for God. Church, listen. It is important that we clearly understand that partial obedience is actually full disobedience. Now, this is clearly seen in Saul's failure to obey God. In the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, we recall the story, do we not, when God told King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. The Bible says, and we're just going to skip through for the space here, our lesson. We want you to go back and, if you hadn't read it in a long time, go back and, and, and reread 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verses uh, 3, all the way through verse number 21. Well, the Bible says, Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Verse 9, Saul and his men spared Agath. That's the king, y'all. Agai's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Everything that appealed to them, they destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Now, I'm sorry. Is that what God said? 
<laughs> you see, again, human logic. They were looking at, and again, when you get time, you go back and you reread it. It was, it was normal to give a sacrifice for thanksgiving, for God blessing you in the victory, okay? And this was normally done in a place called Gilgal. And so they reason within themselves, and again, from a human standpoint, it makes perfect sense. They reason within themselves, listen, since we got to give a sacrifice anyway, why, why not use these perfectly good animals here for the sacrifice? We can save ours for later. Keep ours. Use them. We're going to kill them anyhow, so why not herd them over to Gilgal and kill them there? That makes good sense. That's efficient. Amen. Logically, makes perfect sense. Problem is not what God said. And then, of course, saving a guy's life, that's just plain showboating. That's all that was was to bring him, parade him in front of everybody and show how great I am, Saul, as king, because now I got their king bowing down to me. Just showboating. But now notice, verse 20. When Samuel questioned Saul, look at his answer. Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. Does that sound like the mission he gave you, church? He says, I brought back King Agai. Well, first of all, that wasn't a mission. He said, uh, but I destroyed everything else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Wait a minute. Who did God tell the early to destroy the Amalekites? King Saul, the leader. He didn't talk to the troops. He talked to the leader. A leader's responsibility, church, is to lead. Amen. By example, by word and by example. That's a leader's responsibility. This foolishness that all of us have heard for years, do as I say, not as I do. That's a bunch of foolishness. Because if I can't do what you do, then there's something wrong with what you're doing. <laughs> Amen. You know, something is wrong with it. And then if you're not willing to take your own advice, why should I? <laughs> you know, do as I say, not as I do. Well, you're not doing it. So why should I follow your advice? It don't work for you. Why is it going to work for me? But listen to what the Bible says in verse 23. The Bible says this. This is how God sees this. Samuel told Saul, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. Does everybody see that? Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. And stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
Now just think about that for a quick second. Everything Saul done would have been completely acceptable in the hearts and minds of most people. It would have made complete sense to them. And nobody would have fussed, argued, or complained about it. Yet it was because Saul did not do exactly what God says. God says you rejected me. That's why, that's why I said previously, partial obedience is full disobedience. There's another example of something very similar with Moses. Do you recall when God told Moses for him and Aaron to call the people together and speak to the rock and it bring forth water? Moses was all upset. He goes out to this rock and he struck that rock a couple times and the rock brought forth water. But what God said to him was, because you believe me not to sanctify me before this my people, you shall not lead them into the promised land. That's why Moses, after walking in a circle for 40 years, did not go into the promised land. For something from a human standpoint as small as hitting a rock versus speaking to the rock. People will say, oh, it don't matter what you believe. What you do, long as your heart is right. Hmm. Hmm. Somehow, people think that they have a right heart while doing wrong. Clearly, we can see from Saul's example and from the additional one of Moses, that's not possible. We can't fully disobey God, and still have a good heart, church. People are quick to say that God knows their heart. He does. And that will be their biggest problem because he does know all of our hearts. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 23. Jeremiah says this, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Listen to what Jesus says in the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew, verses 89. Christ said, these people make a big show of saying the right things. Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. That's one of the things you hear. All the time from people. I'm, 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 what is it? I'm, I'm sanctified and full of the Holy Ghost. But Christ says, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they are worshiping me. Notice, they act like they are worshiping me. But they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. Listen to what Jesus said in the book of Mark, chapter 7. Notice verses 6 and verse number 7. Christ says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Church, we have to have a Bible for everything we do. If we don't have a Bible for it, it's wrong. It doesn't matter how good it looks and how it sings and how much we all enjoy it. If it is not in the scriptures, it is a doctrine of men that we have come up with for our own convenience, just as Saul did, just as Moses did, and the results will be the same. Saul lost his kingdom. Because kingdoms normally would have been passed down through the family. God took it from his entire family as well as from him. Moses, who was faithful, put up with all kinds of unimaginable foolishness. You can just imagine that you got a few million people, you walking around in a circle, all the complaining and everything going in. And Moses did not go into the promised land because he hit a rock instead of speaking to it. Church, listen. We can see from our text that it mean, that what it means to have real faith. True faith doesn't look for loopholes. It simply obeys God and knows and trust that he will do what is best. It is very unfortunate that most people put their faith in the convincing arguments and explanations of men rather than on the commands and promises of God. So that's why we have to ask ourselves, what does our faith stand on? You know, are we trusting in men because this seems right, this seems okay? Well, you know, this is what brother so-and-so said, and it seemed all right to them, and the brother's going along with it. I don't care who's going along with it, church. If it's not no word of God from the pulpit to the back door, it's wrong. And we don't go along with wrong. Amen. Not knowingly. Not knowingly. And, 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 and I, I want to say, of course, this has never been my experience, but uh, I want to say, don't never let me be such a good friend. That you just let me go on in my room. Amen. Don't love me that much. If it's something that's going on that's not right, I need to be pulled on it. Amen. You don't, you don't, you don't go along with wrong, church. Because you know what? The longer you, and I'm using me as an example. The longer you allow me to get away with it, I will become emboldened by it. To the point of feeling like, hey, this is all right. Ain't nobody saying nothing. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody arguing over it. They all accept it. It's okay. Well, then you know what's going to happen over time? Somebody else going to start something. And because you didn't deal with the source, Brother Ward, you're not going to be able to deal with the branches. You see, a tree has to be cut down from the root. Cutting a bunch of branches don't do nothing but make that roster go back even stronger. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me on that one. I learned that. Just cutting the branches, it'll come back a year's time bigger and badder than it ever was. You got to show enough cut that thing down. Amen. Little trims only makes things worse. And that's how they're dealing with sin. There's this thing as a little cancer. Sin has to be eradicated. Amen. 
You can't hope for the best with sin. You're going to have to eradicate sin. And that's from the pulpit to the back door. If you don't, sin will take over. And just like cancer, James says, sin, when it is finished, bring it forth death. Notice, sin don't quit and sin don't give up. Sin don't stop till it's finished. It's not going to stop until it corrupts the whole thing. Amen. And so that's why you cannot let me go on and get away with anything. Because if you let me do it, then somebody else is going to do it. Then somebody else is going to do it. Then somebody else is going to do it. And over time, it will corrupt the entire congregation. All of us is corrupt. Because either we are guilty of doing it or guilty of watching it happen and saying nothing. Either way it goes, we're guilty. Amen. From the pulpit to the back door. Either way it go. That's why we have to love each other enough to go to one another in love. Love has to be the motivating factor. But we must go to one another in love and we must give an opportunity. Let me say this and the lesson is going to be yours. We have to go to a person the way we want somebody to come to us. And church, listen. It is always better to ask a question than to make a statement. Did y'all hear me? It's always better to ask a question than to make a statement. Let me give you an example. Coming to me and saying, Brother Ward, are you aware of such and such and such and such? You know what that does? It gives me an opportunity to answer your question and to maybe get it outside and look at it honestly because I may not be aware. Amen. Do you not know, the Bible says if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them who are lost, whom the God of this world has done what? Blinded. Blinded, Blinded their minds. Now, church, you may say, oh, Brother Ward, you've been preaching for over 25 years. You know that. How long had David walked with God before he got with Bathsheba? Another man's wife. Amen. Impregnated her. Sent him to the front lines to have him killed. But she will have the baby. A year of pass. David still had done on him that he was wrong. And this is the man the Bible says, and he's the only man. He is the only man the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Now, who don't know committing adultery with somebody's wife is wrong? Who don't know that? Little children know that. Amen. <laughs> Yet, David was completely oblivious to the most obvious sin that we can even think of. Why? Second, it blinded his mind. Hey, you can't have anything you want. Have anybody you want. That's what sin does. Sin gives us plausible deniability. Sin gives us and puts us in a situation of situational ethics. Well, because of this situation, it's all right. Hey, ain't nobody around to see it. Don't nobody know it. It's okay. That's situational ethics. Amen. 
We got to be careful with these kind of things, church. And so that's why I ask us, I ask us, I ask us, can our faith withstand the fire? See, it's for us. If you notice, I never preach to y'all. Never have, never will. I'm like the uncola. Never had it, never will. We have to be in this together. From the pulpit to the back door. Does our faith withstand the fire? And we'll know it based upon how we have responded to the fire so far. But well, what's the fire? The trials of life. Issues of life. Situations that came up. How did you handle it? Did, 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 did we trust God with it? Or did we go and fix it ourselves? Did we try to figure it out on our own? How do we do it? That's your answer. Whatever the answer to that question is, that's your answer as to how well our faith is standing up on the fire. It's whatever answer was when, when the trial of life came, when the heat of life was on, did you try to figure out and fix it ourselves, yourself, myself, or did we trust God with it? And whatever answer that is, that's the answer to this question. Can your faith withstand the fire? The lesson is yours. If we have anyone this morning that have never obeyed the gospel, the gospel has to be heard and believed, Acts 15 and 7, must repent of our sins, Luke 13 and 3, must confess Christ to be the Son of God, Acts 8, 37, must be willing to be baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts 2 and verse number 47, and the Lord adds to the church daily such as should be saved. If you are a member and you are straight away, the Bible tells us in James to confess your faults one to the other and pray one for others you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man will avail much. That's James chapter 5 and verse number 16. If you're subject to the Savior's invitation, let it be known together. Stand and sing.